1,107 on the church Bible. And we're reading from chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mananin, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping and the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to, to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Pray. Lord, open our ears and still our minds that your word may reach into our hearts and that we may be transformed that we may truly become the people you call us to be. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, it's a pleasure to be here once again. Um, first time at an evening service, so it's a slightly different feel. It's, it's, it's lovely to be here. Actually, just sitting down there, um, looking at these flowers here. I don't know who does your flowers. Oh, marvellous, madam, marvellous. <laughs> Especially because yellow roses are my wife's favourite, so... You must have known. But it just reminded me of a time I went to Canterbury many years ago and uh, sitting in this great cathedral on a Sunday morning and it's filled with visitors from all over the world. And the one thing that sticks in my mind from that time was sitting there looking at the pillar in front of me with flowers around it and thinking how beautiful the flowers were and wonderful part of God's creation. And that's what I t took away. I don't know what the sermon was about. Um, <laughs> so if you don't want to listen to me, have a look at the flowers. They're, they're beautiful. <laughs> 
But today, yes, we come on to Acts chapter 13. Uh, Acts is a wonderful book to read through, isn't it? It's such a a drama. It's a fantastic read, apart from anything it teaches us about the faith. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. But this evening we see um, the beginning of what we often now call uh, Paul's first great missionary journey. And um, it started really without any great ceremony or fanfare. In fact, it came about as a result of worship and fasting and prayer. So, where was this journey? You're ahead of me now. <laughs> where was this journey? Uh, we've just seen the, the first part of that journey. Have anybody been to Cyprus? I knew one or two may have been. I've not been, but uh, it looks very nice. Um, but yes, they sailed across um, to Salamis and then made their way across the island to Paphos and later on travelled back up uh, back up to the mainland, as it were. Um, so that's... And of course, Cyprus was the home of Barnabas. He was going home on this journey as well. And so there we, there we see the outline of the journey. Just have a, a quick look at some of the places. Um, that, I'm reliably told, is um, the remains of Roman Salamis. Apparently it's quite close to uh, Famagusta, so it's in the Turkish part of Cyprus. Like these, these nods are very affirming, thank you. <laughs> in the, the, the Turkish northern part of Cyprus, but on the, you know, obviously on the, the northeast coast. Um, and so for Barnabas and Saul, this was an important gateway to the island. And there, as we read in Acts chapter 13, when they got there, they spoke in the synagogues. They were starting with their own people, weren't they? They were starting with where, with the familiar and uh, essentially creating a base from which to move across the island. So that was in uh, verse 5, just says, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Poor John just added as a little afterthought there, but he was with them as the helper. So, um, moving on from there, that's part of Salamis today, apparently. That's a modern hotel development in the bay, not far from where those remains are. So, you know, things have moved on in the last 2,000 years. Uh, but I don't think uh, they would recognize that one today. And then the next one just shows us uh, some of the Roman remains around Paphos. Um, you know, reminding us it's, it's not, I mean, nowadays it's a great big tourist center, but, you know, it has those origins. It was an important place in the time of this journey undertaken by Barnabas and Saul. So we, we know a little bit about the beginning and the end. We know they went across the island, but there's very little we know about the middle part of that journey, who they spoke to, what they did, etc., etc. So we've got 13 verses of, of Acts here. What can we learn from these verses? Well, one thing I want to draw attention to is the many unknown co-workers. It's the journey of Saul, of Barnabas and Saul, but there were others, weren't there? In the first few verses we read, in the church of Ant at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Those are the five. The five names were given in this first part of Acts chapter 13. Barnabas and Saul, well, they're underlined. They're the key figures that we'll talk a little bit more about in a few moments. 
But these are all prophets and teachers. These are all that group of faithful Christian disciples and apostles who were obviously at the heart of the church in Antioch. We know very little, if anything, we know nothing really about the other three. Maybe that's why there's a little bit of extra information given in the text. You know, because anybody at that time would have said, oh, which Simon was that? Oh, yeah, Simon called Niger. Which Lucius? Yeah, Lucius from Cyrene. Oh, that Manian who was brought up with Herod. You know, so this little, little bits of information given. But we know nothing about their lives. God chose two particular members, Barnabas and Saul, of that church to carry the gospel out on that missionary journey. But the other three all had a part to play. They were prophets and teachers. They served Christ in his church. They were part of that early Christian community. And it was with them and amongst them that Barnabas and Saul were able to develop their skills and learn their faith and explore their faith together. And it was through fellowship with the wider church that they were strengthened and guided and eventually chosen for the special task ahead. And of course, as we know, Simeon, Lucius and Manian were amongst those who laid hands on them and sent them off on that journey. So they are not just bystanders. They're important parts of the story. We just happen to know nothing about them. And there are lots of people in the Bible like that, people who are listed and named but we don't know anything about. People who, you know, may, maybe there were documents and stories that circulated about Simeon, Lucius and Manian, but we've lost them. We don't know what those stories are. But they were part and still are part of that story. Look at the next picture. Now, this is just to sort of say, well, that's how it is. This is how it is in the church. This wonderful photograph is a picture of uh, Coates Hall, Edinburgh Theological College, 1989. In the back row, there's a tall guy with a white jumper on. That's me. Um, when I was rather younger. On that picture, there are 20 students amongst that group. 20 students. In the front row, there are three academic staff. And then there's a selection of family members and domestic staff. The domestic staff and other members, I don't know what happened to them, where they went, where they are now. I know something about some of the others. Of the three staff, one is still active in ministry. The chap on the, the, the dog collar on the right, uh, just before the two ladies, he is now a bishop in Glasgow and Galloway. In the middle was a principal who's now retired, and next to him... There's a man that if you could see, you might recognize because he became the Bishop of Burnley, John Goddard. And he now, of course, has also retired. Of the students, 20 students, half of those, 10 of them, are still definitely active in ministry in some way or other. One of them's a bishop, and one of them is Vicar of St. Martin's in the Fields in Trafalgar Square in London. So he sometimes appears on the radio and things like that. The rest of us are doing odd parish work and various things that we're involved in around the country, and in fact, in one case, in Australia. Of the other ten, two have definitely retired, one sadly has died, and seven, I don't know. They are in the same category as Simeon, Lucius, and Manian. I don't know where they are. I don't know what became of them. Some of them still will be in ministry. I know some fell by the wayside and had problems and went off in other directions, there are seven sort of just gone off the radar completely. Now, that's how it works, isn't it? That's how it works in the church. You know, all of us from that picture were sent off in our separate ways. And we've all faced our own challenges, and hopefully we've all endeavoured to be faithful to our calling. 
Life at college was not especially happy all the time, wasn't always very easy. Yet each of those people has had a part to play in shaping me as a Christian and as an Anglican priest. Now, sitting here this evening, some of you will be remembered in this church in years to come. In 30 years' time, they'll be talking about some of you, you know, uh, oh, remember old so-and-so, or weren't they good, or, oh, they were terrible, you know. You will be talked about and remembered and known. Others will just drift away and go quietly, and your place will know it no more. But does that matter? You know, that's not what it's about, is it? We don't know where our ministry, where our calling will take us. But what we do know is, as members of this congregation and fellowship at St. Stephen's, each person has a responsibility to the other to be a source of inspiration and encouragement. We have responsibility for each other, to build each other up. You know, Paul talks about build each other up in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks to God. Well, that's what we are to do. That's what you are to do as a congregation here. Hopefully, you know, in due course, very shortly, with the new vicar and everybody else who fills this church on, on many occasions. All are part, an important part, of the fellowship, of the community, of God's chosen people, this representative part of the body of Christ in this part of Preston. Of the five that were mentioned before, you know, only two were sent to Cyprus on the journey, but all remain an important part of the fellowship, and all of those, those other three names listed, and many others as well, shared in the work of those who went off on that journey. So, all those unknown co-workers, all of us here are important and have an important part uh, in God's, God's, God's family, in the body of Christ. Now, moving on, um, I think another thing we need to draw out of this passage tonight is that we have a powerful gospel. Now, I don't need to tell you that. I'm sure we all know we have a powerful gospel. But what do I mean by this in the context of Acts 13? Well, let's just, first of all, quickly read through a few more verses. I'm going to read from verse 4 to 11, the, the main body of the passage, just to refresh our memory. The two of them, Saul and Barnabas, the two of them sent on the way, their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. As I said at the beginning, Acts is dramatic. There's lots of 
amazing things happening every, at every turn of the page. That's a very dramatic little illustration. What happens here, though? I said that we have a powerful gospel. What do I mean by that in this context? I think one important thing is that the gospel has the power to change. Now, again, I don't need to tell you that, but let's, let's give thanks for that and think about what it means for us as well. In that bit I've just heard from verse 4 to 11, we first of all see an invitation. Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, presumably had heard about Barnabas and Saul and their presence on the island, and now he wanted to hear the word of God. In a way, this in itself is a bit astonishing, because around him, in Paphos, there would surely have been many shrines, many temples, places he could have gone to consult the oracle and heard a divine word from someone and somewhere. He could have turned to any of those cults to hear God's word. But no, he didn't do that. Or maybe he had done that and rejected it. We don't know. But we're told he was an intelligent man. And having rejected whatever he'd heard around him, he wanted to hear the word of God. That word of God that must have come to him by people talking about Saul and Barnabas and what they were doing, what was happening. The reputation of the gospel had preceded it with Barnabas and Saul as a worthy ambassadors. And so, you know, there's an invitation but very quickly, taking up that invitation to go and see the proconsul, we are confronted with a confrontation. We are introduced to Elymas, the sorcerer. He's the chap on the right in the blue robe. He must have been close to the proconsul. He must have had the ear of the proconsul. He was trying to, in a sense, manipulate what the proconsul was hearing and what messages came to him. Maybe it was... Elymas's words that the proconsul had already rejected in his wisdom. We don't know. But when Elymas is confronted by Paul carrying with him the truth of the gospel, he is unable to withstand it. Elymas cannot withstand that truth and the power of the gospel. He is revealed as a fraud. He's revealed as a false prophet. And just as Saul himself had been struck blind when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, so now Elymas is struck blind, only for a time, as was Saul. Of course, in the story, in the passage, it's left like that. We don't know what happened next. Maybe, maybe, it'd be wonderful to think that Elymas was also, like Saul before him, brought to repentance and a new way of life following Christ. But we can only speculate on that. That, of course, would be a wonderful demonstration of the power of the gospel to change. And so we have in Acts 13, uh, just next slide please, we have confirmation that we have as Christians a gospel of change and renewal. We are told that the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus came to believe that very moment. Verse 12 says, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching of us teaching about the Lord. There we have Sergius Paulus converted, kneeling down at the feet of Paul. Was it just the incredible events surrounding Elymas that convinced him? We don't know. In part, that was, that was part of it, maybe it was, partly why he, he 
converted or believed in in the message of Barnabas and Saul because it says when he saw what had happened, he believed. But it also says he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He saw and he heard. He saw something in a sense to demonstrate the power of the gospel, but he heard the teaching. And as an intelligent man, he could weigh up what he was hearing. Barnabas and Saul, like Jesus before, proclaimed the good news in word and deed. And so the proconsul saw and heard and believed. Now we too, of course, have that same gospel. We too have a powerful gospel. The very same one that Barnabas and Saul took with them on that journey across Cyprus. How good are we? First of all, at believing we have a powerful gospel. But secondly, at proclaiming that gospel in word and deed. How good is the church today at focusing on what really matters? Focusing on the gospel. Get, how, how easy it is for us to become sidetracked and distracted by the many disputes and uh, discussions that go on in our midst. We have lots of things in the church that need to be discussed. Always has, it's always been the case. But I think the church sometimes doesn't do it in a very healthy way. When I say the church, I'm thinking about you know, the institution of the church, and in particular the Church of England, our synods and structures and so on. You will be aware that there are many uh, difficult debates going on in the church at the moment. When I was, well, before I was ordained, I've been involved in the Church of England for 30-ish years now, 30-odd years. And since the very beginning of that time, there has been, a, 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 if you like, a preponderance of debate about matters of gender and sexuality. Now, that's not to say that these things shouldn't be discussed and course we have to make decisions about what we understand is consistent with the gospel and what we as Christians should teach about these things but sometimes the way in which we go about that discussion and debate is not helpful to the gospel we can behave too much like parliament you know adversarial accusing everybody else of being wrong and making demands and insisting on this that and the other that's not the way it should be. We know that in the, in the, in the days of, of, of Jesus himself, in the gospel and, and in the, the epistles, in Acts, we know there were dis- disputes in the church. We know that they fell out. We know, uh, for example, that Paul and Barnabas, only a little bit later on after our reading today in, in chapter 15, we know that they fell out about taking John with them on their next trip. They fell out and went their separate ways. We know that in Acts chapter 15, there was the Council of Jerusalem. There were, there, there, were, there were disputes about what do you do with these Gentile converts who haven't already uh, taken on the Jewish faith. Like, you know, start off, everybody's converting from being a Jew. They already keep the law. What about these Gentiles who don't have the law, don't follow the law? How do you deal with them and bring them into the fellowship of the church? There were different understandings of how that should be carried on. And so... There was that council of Jerusalem, that coming together of the apostles to decide on how that should be approached. So there's nothing new, you know, this falling out, but you'd think that after 2,000 years of practice, we might have a few things sorted out, but it doesn't seem to be the case. And sadly, the church continues to fall out and separate and divide and 
to my mind anyway, I don't know how you feel, but to my mind, weaken the power of the gospel because we can't come to some common view or some accommodation of different views, perhaps, within the fellowship of the church. Debate and discuss, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. But when we see a church preoccupied and dividing itself over areas of disagreement, what does that say to the world about the gospel we hold dear? How powerful does our version of the gospel today seem to the world around us? How many people will be changed by the gospel proclaimed by the church today? If we want to make sure our gospel remains powerful and actually does change, then maybe we need to find a better way of being the church and certainly a better way of dealing with our disagreements. The gospel is powerful. It renews and it changes. Move to the next slide, please. This is another important point for us to take off, take, take away from this reading. It sounds very small, really, but uh, Barnabas and Saul becomes Paul and his companions. You notice how it changed at the end of the passage. No longer talking about Barnabas and Saul. Oh, suddenly it's Paul and his companions. Just the very end of chapter 13, I'll just read the last verse. Okay, so we've just had the... Uh, conversion of Sergius Paulus, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. So we started the chapter talking about Barnabas and Saul, and we now see Saul's Christian name of Paul being used, and from now on he's the lead evangelist in this endeavor, you know, and he becomes effectively the key figure in much of Acts from now on. The story of Acts kind of goes in that way. I mean, um, earlier on, uh, Stephanie was talking about how, you know, we've been hearing about Peter a lot, but now suddenly, ooh, Paul comes along as a bigger, a bigger figure in the, in the story. You know, we begin with Acts with the very early days of the church, just after the ascension of Jesus, and we hear about Stephen standing up for the gospel and becoming the first martyr. You know, we, we hear about uh, Saul's conversion on the Damascus Road preparing the ground for his leading role that effectively starts here in this passage. Uh, we see Peter as the most prominent of the apostles, and then we've just had Barnabas and Saul, and now it's going to be Paul and his companions. We see a development and progression of the life of the church and the unfolding of the Christian story and that message being taken out into the wider and wider and wider world. You know, Paul didn't just leap onto the stage like, you know, the winner of some X-Factor competition to become the leader of the Christian world. He always remained humble about his claim to be an apostle. If you just think about uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just have a look at this if you want to turn to it. It's in, on page 1156, page 1156 in the, in the church Bible. just want to read a few verses from 15 verse 3. Just think about what Paul's saying about himself in this. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And verse 8, And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, 
and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Paul makes no great claims for himself. He was a powerful leader. He was a powerful evangelist, a powerful missionary. But he didn't make great claims for himself. He remained humble about his position as an apostle. And in contrast to that humility, he was able to make very bold claims about what Christ was doing in him and in and through the church. Christ working in him, Christ working in us today. God's call was at work in Paul. God's call is at work in us. So however humble we are, however inadequate we feel, however small we feel, however insignificant we feel, the power of the gospel working in us is tremendous. And every single one of us, kind of going back to what I said earlier on, every single one of us is part of that calling of the church to take the gospel out into the world. And I, love, I just love Paul's attitude towards that, that humility about himself and that passion and boldness about the gospel. We do well to try and copy Paul in that respect. And so the first part of this first missionary journey came to an end. We see them sailing off there across the Mediterranean back to Perga and then onwards and onwards and onwards they went. Um, Paul and his companions sailed away. John, we're told, left them and went back to Jerusalem. That became a source of this disagreement later on between Paul and Barnabas. Uh, but until that point, if you read the next couple of chapters, you'll see Paul and Barnabas continuing their work together and then in different directions. And the wonderful thing about all this is that we are all part of this same story. I hope that's sort of come through in some of the things I've been saying. You know, we live in a different time and place, and we need to consider how we can make the gospel powerful and alive for the people around us today. To do that, we need to be faithful. We need to do the things we do well and with sincerity. And we need to be creative. A few weeks ago, I talked about Paul in Athens and how he referred to the, uh, the altar to an unknown God and used that as a starting point for his, his evangelism amongst the people he met there. Well, we need to be creative too sometimes. And we've got one last slide to show, which may seem completely unrelated to anything else I've said. We have a picture of a statue and a seal. The statue is of a man named Hans Egeda. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Egeda, Egeda. He was Norwegian. And there he was uh, in the 18th century, the 1720s, sent off as a Lutheran missionary in July 1721 to Greenland, to where the seal comes in. He landed in Greenland with a mission to the peoples of that land. He had a long and fruitful mission in Greenland and became known as the Apostle of Greenland. But the point about the seal is this. When Hans Egede and his companions were teaching the faith, they discovered that the native Inuit people actually didn't know anything about bread. They didn't really grow much wheat in Greenland, and they were sort of semi-nomadic hunting people, not farmers. They had no concept of bread. They had no word for bread. 
And so when they were being taught the Lord's Prayer, our daily bread became our daily seal. You know, so it's just a little illustration of how we can adapt. That's one reason why the Christian faith has endured so much and so for so long, why it's traveled across the whole world. Our faith is not bound to one time and to one place and to one culture. We have a founder who still lives and through the power of the Holy Spirit can still speak to us and through us today. So the Christian faith is at the same time eternal and ageless and yet contemporary and adaptable. If it weren't, well, we'd be reading this in Greek now, wouldn't we? You know, things would be different if that wasn't the case. And I'm not sure how many people in Preston would respond to a gospel written in Greek, but maybe things would be different. But, you know, because we've adapted over the centuries and brought the, the, the language of the gospel in the vernacular to the people of our communities, people here in Preston today can enter into a living and loving relationship with Christ Jesus, just as we here have done. And so, let us thank God for all that has been handed down to us, for that wonderful story in Acts of which we are still part today. Let's thank God for calling us to be his apostles in the world today. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for the wonderful example from your early apostles, for the work of Barnabas and Saul and all those involved in those tumultuous times, taking the gospel out into the wider world. And we thank you for those who have brought it to us, all those who have helped to open our eyes to the love of God around us, to the presence of Christ Jesus in our lives. So strengthen us today for the task that lies before us, that the people of Preston and beyond may hear again and again that good news of Christ Jesus and be brought into a faithful and loving relationship with him. So we offer you ourselves and all involved in this church here and throughout this city as your faithful witnesses and evangelists. Fill us with compassion and humility and fill us with boldness to bring the gospel to where it is needed that your holy name may be praised forevermore. Amen.